Um, So going back into our daily lives, you know, we when we go on retreat, we we become quite um, sensitive and and attuned. I mean, even if the mind has not become, you know, completely quiet, nonetheless, it's. Um, we sometimes are surprised when we kind of go back into our daily activity how uh, quieted, uh, quiet and, and, and kind of tuned in we've, we've become. We might not actually realize it because the environment has supported it so much. Um, so the the very basic thing that I want to emphasize is uh, how helpful it is to to have a, a daily practice of meditation. If you um, if you want to continue and deepen in uh, this the the mind the awareness the mindfulness the, um, the the capacity to to stay present in the moment to be non reactive or to be less reactive, you know, as it develops. Um, the, the, a daily practice is so helpful. And, um, and then another thing is uh, to, um, to somehow connect with like-minded people. So if there's a group around you that you can go to to practice together, um, there's a lot of also online um, connection that's happening now. Personally, I think that there's nothing like being with another human being, other human beings. Um, some people live in remote places, or there's not a an area, a, a group in their area. So, um, so that that's helpful. Um, so, so looking particularly at our um, at the theme of our retreat around uh, exploring non-self and exploring how craving and clinging lead to holding to a self. And, um, and we hold on to a, you know, a, a belief in a self or, or construction of self in many different ways and, and some and 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 a, and a lot of us, you know, have constructed a sense of self that, you know, we we kind of believe in. You know, we believe that I am this person, or we believe that I am this kind of person, or, um, and um, and of course, you know, anything that we're holding on to in that way as a belief and identity, um, it's. Um, it's going to be a losing battle because, you know, if I, if I believe that I'm, you know, a compassionate and kind person, and when I see judgment and, and anger and even um, ill will coming up in my mind, you know, I'm going to f- feel 
unstable and threatened and confused. Um, you know, early on in my practice, I I um, discovered how judging my mind was, uh, and it was deeply, deeply unsettling to me. You know, I just began as the my mind became became quieter. I just began to see one judgment coming up after another. You know, I was judging the way people were doing walking meditation. I was judging the way people were eating their dinner. I was <laughs> judging clothes they wore. I was just judging, judging, judging. I was just shocked. <laughs> wow. I, uh, you know, so, so it, it, it was, um, it was a very good experience. <laughs> it was painful. Uh, it was, you know, spiritually unpleasant. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I needed to have compassion for myself. And, uh, and in connecting with those uh, unwanted um, characteristics of, and mental habits uh, <coughs> with compassion, you know, I, I was able to open to compassion not only to myself but to others because as we, as we bring our compassion to ourselves, as we more deeply see, you know, where we're caught in these patterns of craving and clinging and becoming and defending ourselves and projecting ourselves and um, uh, trying to control um, other people uh, so that we feel more comfortable. You know, as we see these things, and we all have done them, um, as we see them in ourselves, we, we can more likely be compassionate when we see them in others. So, um, so our practice, our practice is for the benefit of all beings, you know, because as we, as we open our hearts with kindness and compassion and wisdom um, and understanding you know, to this body, this, this mind, this heart, we are opening to the reality around us. So we have these identities, and um, we have these identities, you know, as uh, maybe a, a father or a mother, or um, or a daughter or a son, or uh, a, some kind of professional, um, uh, um, as you know, somebody who has per perhaps. A role in in our community, a role in an organization, and um, and how do we relate to that? You know, how do we relate to that? Do we do we invest that with a sense of of self? Do we think that that's where our value is? That that's you know that in order to to uh, to matter, you know, in order to have uh, in order to be content, in order to be at peace, that 
that we need to fulfill that role um, because that role will come to an end. And if we feel that that's what's important about who we are, then, um, then we, at some point, you know, we're going to be on shaky ground. It's going to be hard. Um, so, so who am I if I'm not, you know, a father, a mother, rich, poor, a victim, beautiful, lovable, unlovable, a good person, a bad person? You know, sometimes we identify in negative ways. People, a lot of people identify in negative ways, you know. I'm a bad person. Um, it, at True North Insight, we, we, we work in a couple of prisons in, in, uh, in Laval, federal prisons, and, and there's a group of inmates who come um, and meditate. We, we have a, a group of volunteers who come and meditate with the in, inmates. And um, and uh, you know sometimes I, I offer a forgiveness meditation or a loving kindness meditation or compassion meditation, and it's so hard because you know they to forgive themselves it's really really hard, and um, and so that identification um, is strong. Uh, it's hard to let go. So, so when, when our, you know, when our, our kind of holding tightly to, you know, those roles as our, as our identity, you know, is somehow uh, undermined or, you know, the role changes, the role um, expires, um, there can be a lot of fear that comes up. And um, and so it's good to it's good to look at our identities, and and perhaps hold, learn to hold them more loosely, more lightly, um, and and uh, and recognize that who we truly are is is not, you know, that kind of definable role. You know, roles are. It's like uh, an actor, you know. Um, we enter into our roles, and when we're in our roles, we um, uh, we enter fully into them. We bring our gifts, we bring our responses, we bring our um, our experiences, and so on. And then we leave them. So, so in meditation, we cultivate that inner presence, that that you know that that sense of uh, awareness, openness, um, which from which that that emptiness from which. Um, Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking, all the activities of the body and mind uh, emerge and rise and pass away. So it's, it's, it's a dance. 
It's a dance. And, and so we dance into a sense of self. You know, we have, as we enter into a role, as we, as we enter into a, a relationship, you know, there is a kind of reality that we may feel, you know, to be a kind of a self, a kind of, um, a kind of, it has its own w- world, you know, uh, like being a father, being a mother, being a friend, being a friend to a particular person, you know, so, so what, uh, being a friend to my friend Pat is different from being a friend to my friend Pascal or my friend Muriel or my friend um, Gail, you know, all of these are friends, but, you know, being a friend with that, we create a world together. So, uh, you know, in each of us, and I'm, you know, with, with that world, this is different. And, it's, and, and when I enter into that, that world with each one of them, I, you know, there's a, something that happens between us. And we are, um, you know, creating something together. So, so we do enter into a kind of a sense of being, being someone. And I think that's, um, that's how we live. Uh, it's, it's just it's how we hold it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the ways <coughs> that uh, we, we enter into a sense of self, which is, you know, um, something that I think is also important to mention, is that as children we develop a healthy sense of self. Um, if we do. <laughs> uh, not all of us do or did. And, uh, and then as adults, we need to um, perhaps do some uh, remedial work. <laughs> and so, you know, so, um, you know, if we, Alice Miller, a psychologist, um, writes really beautifully about this uh, in the, the drama of the gifted child, you know, that, that children need to be loved, they need to be received, they need to be seen, they need to be listened to, they need to be affirmed in their gifts. And, and, when, this, and when this doesn't happen to us as children, um, we, we don't have that healthy sense of self, um, that healthy sense of, you know, that I'm, I have capacities, I have, I have uh, um, something to offer. And, and so, and so uh, it's important that when we do this, when we offer this Dharma teaching on non-self, that we, you know, that we recognize we're not trying to destroy a healthy sense of self. We're not trying to undermine that. You know, it's it's the solidifying, the the and the intense identification with it, because that healthy sense of self is something that's dynamic and changing and evolving. Right? It's not something that's stuck. So, so a healthy sense of self can can be a sense of agency. Uh, that you know maybe. Maybe I can make a difference here. 
You know, maybe this is a set of circumstances in which I can bring something that will, is of value. So, so that's um, that's really important as we we live in the world. And and our practice supports that. Our, our practice supports that sense of agency because because we we can find within ourselves you know a, a quality of calmness non-reactivity um, presence we, we, we experience that we can be a space of refuge to ourselves and by being a space of refuge to ourselves we also learn to be a space of refuge for others so um, so we can perhaps receive the anxiety of a spouse or uh, a child or a friend um, without um, feeling that we need to fix it or we uh, that somehow threatens us you know that that we that space that inner space of refuge um, helps us to be present with and to make good choices in our lives. Yeah, another thing, um, going back to this healthy sense of self, you know, one of the ways that uh, people experience um, the lack of this healthy sense of self is feeling invisible that you know we're not seen and um, and and feeling that there was no space for us in our families you know uh, and and maybe feeling there's no space for us in our schools or or even our network of friends you know that you know maybe we feel you know they they don't really want me uh, or or in order to be to belong I need to kind of uh, stay invisible, not really make waves or not really make my spe- my, myself felt. And, um, and, I, and actually, it's, it's interesting that in this, in, in my own practice, you know, as, as the, the grasping on to self you know, in by craving and clinging, has diminished and you know lessened over years and years of practice. That this capacity that I've you know to 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 take up space to arrive to you know that yeah you know I'm here. Each one of us is here. Each one of us is you know. If we can be fully present, fully ourselves, with confidence, um, trusting, trusting that what we bring to this this space, to this gathering, to to our families, to our work, to our communities, that that we have uh, that there is wisdom, that there is love, that there is compassion, that there's there are there are uh, Insights that that can flow through us, you know that that because it actually undermines it that 
that confidence to offer something of benefit, to be present in a way that is is um, is welcomed. You know, it undermines that when we're we're kind of somehow you know all twisted up about it, <laughs> and we're we're kind of grasping onto something, and we're we're. Uh, Resentful and, and and envious and 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 uncertain and and so um, seeing all of those unskillful ways of being, which which are not a self, they are the causes, they're, they're they're arising from the causes and conditions of our lives, and seeing, you know, how um, they undermine our happiness. You know, and our capacity to be with, uh, in, to be in relationship in wholesome ways, is part of our practice. And then I also want to um, kind of highlight um, a social, a, a reality <coughs> in terms of you know social. Um, social marginalization, social uh, negation of a healthy sense of being um, a somebody, being um, valuable. Because we may have been marginalized, denied, demeaned, degraded um, as a member of a group, which is which is marginalized, which is not uh, fully respected, which is not included. So whether this is, you know, an ethnic group, a linguistic group, a, a skin color, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, body size, ability, disability, poverty. Um, so, so many issues. Uh, cause people to feel that they're invisible, that they're marginalized, that they're not wanted and, and, that, and that also can create a you know can really twist us up in, in terms of just our sense of a healthy self and so, and so we see a lot of different ways that, that people are um, are naming that in our society these days and and uh, repairing that and coming together to support each other in repairing that you know um, around race around gender identity around uh, language around culture and so on because you know these judgments are internalized So it's important that the teaching on no self is not used to negate these harmful effects. You know, you know. It, oh well, yourself doesn't really matter. You know, because really, who you are is the absolute. Because that's part of the journey to awakening is is a journey of healing.
And I also want to talk a little bit about the um, the practices of the the boundless qualities of heart. Different different ways of naming these, but I I like uh, very much the word boundless when we talk about them because um, I find that that loving kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are, are ways that our hearts open and, um, and, and, and we dissolve the barriers that we imagine exist between us. So, so you know, if I were to say, uh, you know, one thing to kind of notice as as a kind of um, a little red light that can go on so that we notice, oh, it's time, it's time to kind of uh, practice, I'm stuck in something, uh, around the, the teachings on anatta. I would say, if you notice yourself craving and clinging, you know, like, Craving and clinging, okay, look at it. You know? <laughs> like because the story goes on and on and on, we get we go out there and, and it can really go on for a long time, right? So, so then at a certain moment when you wake up uh, and you say, oh, oh, there's craving and clinging going on here. That's painful. Um, turn, turn toward it. And and for the Brahma Viharas the boundless states, you know, judgment, ill will, um, uh, rejection, feeling rejected, um, let that highlight it, you know, uh, notice it. Uh, is it, is it, is it really true? You know, just, and, and open the heart, you know, so, so we feel uncomfortable around suffering. Um, we feel uncomfortable, you know, in a certain situation because somebody is maybe acting different uh, and we, we want to extricate ourselves. Can we open the heart? Can we, can we uh, try to empathize? Can we bring goodwill, uh, friendship, kindness to that that place of reactivity, where we're, you know, putting up walls? So I think um, I think I'll stop there and um, invite any questions or comments or things that you're thinking about with regard to you know living your practice in your daily lives could be practical it could be more kind of general development of 
equanimity, which I feel has been the result of my own just sitting practice and open awareness and shamatha, tamata. I'm wondering if there, and it's something that I'd like to cultivate more on, and I found it to be very helpful, especially relationally. And I'm wondering if there are specific practices um, for the development of equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. There there are equanimity practices that are similar to the metta practices. Um, and you know, like like phrases. Um, and and you can find them online. My favorite is very simple. Um, things are as they are or this is how it is right now. Or um, some variations on that that are coming into my mind are, um, you know, with regard to somebody, to another person, you have the right to your choices. Or you have the right to your own timing, to your own unfolding. You know, it's... Uh, um, but yesterday I talked also about you know, how we lay the foundation for equanimity. And, um, and I think that really the foundation for equanimity, well, you know, there were, we talked about the practice of virtue. When we, feel, when we feel that we haven't harmed, you know, others intentionally, um, we, we feel balanced within ourselves. We feel blameless. And that that helps us to to be equanimous in in our lives. Um, when um, uh, when we practice vipassana, we see the as you were mentioning, as we you know we're just really seeing that things arise and pass away, and um, and so. You know, I, um, uh, you know, after yesterday's talk, um, the, the Dharma talk I gave, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I tried to say too much. It was too long. There were too many words. <laughs> you know, it was, it was like, I, I tried to squeeze too much into it. Uh, and then, you know, and, and there was this little feeling of, uh, I wish I had kind of pared it down a little bit more. And, um, and and brought more of my you know my own personal experience into it, and uh, and 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 years ago I just would have I would have held that for so long I just would have would have felt bad I would have <laughs> thought about it oh you know I wasn't it wasn't good I, you know and and it would it would have been a lot about a self right a lot about a self. And so, you know, I thought, because oh, oh, yeah. I know that, like, it's just flowing. Like, things are just flowing. And there's so much that you're all practicing with and working with and, and that I am. And, and I don't think, you know, you're all just saying, oh, that Dharma talk was just not up to scratch. <laughs> you know, uh, like, uh, you know, just let it go. You know, I, I realize that you know, if it's big, it's because it's me that's making a big deal out of it. Um, 
and and that it's just, you know, we keep going, keep flowing. Yeah, so I think just really deeply, I mean, and I, I was happy, you know, and I felt equanimity around it, you know, I was glad to see that equanimity that I was there, and we noticed that, you know, we just, we noticed that, well, things that used to really upset us, and we used to carry around, we just, you know, we might have a moment of, of, you know, sorrow, maybe we can learn something from it, um, and, and move on. Uh, so I think that's equanimity, <coughs> you know. And and it's really important to know that equanimity is not indifference. It's um, it's not a distancing. It's not a, a numbness. It's not a a kind of a you know detachment. I mean, detachment is sometimes used in a positive way, but it's usually Buddhists will say non-attachment to distinguish it from detachment. And uh, it's, not a, it's not a detaching, a disconnecting from life. Yeah. And I find that, you know, a lot of things that I used to think I had to fix, you know, <laughs> it's not that important. It's not that important. And I don't need to get into... Um, a conflict with, you know, my husband or, you know, somebody about something that's really not important. Some things are important. It's not to say there's nothing that's important. Some things are important. Um, and so let's address the important things. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. I'm really glad you, you spoke today about how uh, meditation is also a process of, um, of healing. Um, I was sort of sitting this morning feeling like, man, I've got a lot of incompletions that I need to sort of work on before I can not graduate, but I can sort of do more choiceless awareness or even Vipassana-based meditation. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that working on incompletions is something that needs to happen sooner rather than later in order for your meditation practice to progress or if it's a mutual process would you recommend if I'm aware of sort of um, companions um, good and bad that I have sort of trends that have come up in my practice yeah is it something that you know I should start leaving today if I if I'm aware of them should I dedicate some time to really working on those um, intensely, or is it something that I can parallel with a more breath or Vipassana-based or choiceless awareness-based meditation as well? Yeah. I think, personally, I think that that the meditation practice really supports you know, this work that we do with incompletions, because you know, it brings this, this we're developing uh, within ourselves an inner presence and um, uh, and 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 that uh, bringing that love also, you know, <clears throat> the, the meta is so important. Um, and and so I would say, you know, don't don't neglect the the incompletions, the you know, the healing work. Um, sometimes 
it's helpful to get some support specifically for that. And and um, yeah, it's. I think it. I think that they can really work together well. I just had a question about, about feeling tones, um, and I think I know the that with, with choices, choices awareness, it's more just you just noticing things going. And then today I just noticed a bit of feeling tone towards something in the choices awareness. But my understanding is that we try not to, like we just let it go. But do I? I'm not sure if I'm being clear. But if I notice a, a feeling tone when doing um, choices awareness. Do I just let that go as well, or do you, like, do you just go home? Oh, yeah, yeah, pleasant, unpleasant, uh, you know, whatever. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, there's a, it, that's, you know, you're noticing that something is being experienced as pleasant or unpleasant, and there's no need to react to it. If it's pleasant, there's, there's a, you know, it, it brings a certain kind of um, lightness, perhaps, uh, and if it's unpleasant, um, you know, it's it's unpleasant. We all know it could be, you know, and un- both pleasant and unpleasant to have a, a wide range, you know. So things can be mildly unpleasant, um, you know, uh, the presence of the little bugs, you know, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> is on that spectrum to, you know, to... Uh, Having a cement block dropped on your foot to <laughs> to the loss of you know someone you love or you know having a severe health issue or you know so so there's a whole range <coughs> of pleasant and unpleasant experience and so 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 when when we when we can be with unpleasant experiences without always needing to escape from them or fix them or <coughs> or um, distract ourselves from them, you know, it, it kind of builds up our capacity to be with the big unpleasant ones <laughs> that, that uh, will um, certainly come our way in life if they haven't already. Um, and, yeah, and the, and the capacity to enjoy pleasant experiences without feeling dependent on them you know, for our well-being, without needing to chase them all the time. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Well, I have a question, then. The one word I don't think we've used in the room over the three days is death. And I'm more interested not in, in death itself, but in dying. Yeah. And I see that as, as the most profound, fundamental anxiety that we all have. And we distract ourselves in various different ways. But there's going to be a point, obviously, where not just everybody else in this room is going to die, but I'm going to die. Right. That's the one I'm interested in. So, <clears throat> I think that I've been thinking about how to put this, and I think that really how I want to put it is I would be really interested in hearing your reflections as you prepare yourself with all the wisdom that you've gained for dying. Not not for being dead, that's the difference, but the dying part. Yeah. yeah. I'd be really curious. <coughs> yeah. I did I did talk about it 
but um, so just just uh, um, but for me um, every meditation sitting I do is preparation for dying um, because in the moment of of sitting in meditation just being aware open in with the mind <coughs> silent and, and present um, in unfolding experience I think that's what dying will be um, People sometimes ask me, you know, you know, what about rebirth, or you know, you know, is, what about the bardo? And I don't know about the bardo. Um, I know that uh, that we are being born moment by moment. That there's a dying and a being born in our moment by moment lives. And um, and this moment of whatever it is that I'm I'm present with in this moment is is conditioning the next moment. So so if there's you know greed in this moment, it's conditioning the next moment. If there's Kindness, if there's patience, if there's openness, it's conditioning the next moment. And, and I believe that's true as we die as well. Um, I, I have a mentor who is, um, is a, uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist, um, the Bern uh, Buddhist tradition. And um, uh, uh, she's a very wise woman, and and I said um, in one of our conversations, I said um, people often ask me about you know what is it like you know what about the bardo what about rebirth and I said you know like. I don't want to talk from a place of belief, you know. And she said, "Oh yeah, belief is can be blown away by any strong wind, you know. <laughs> it's um, belief doesn't hold you very solidly." Um, and um, and she's. And, and we were talking about the body and practice with the body, and I, I forget exactly how the conversation unfolded. But she said, you know, perhaps in the process of dying, you know, one way of, of understanding it is that, you know, in our, in our lifetime, as when we're when we're living and and uh, in our practice, we have this body, 
which in a way gives us the opportunity to hold, you know, as a mirror, to hold the, the formations, the patterns that drive us, you know, those, that, those karmic formations, perhaps we can call them, the, you know, the, the patterns that, that we've developed, at least in this life. And, and, and we're driven by them, right? You know, greed, anger, whatever they are. In the body, we have the opportunity to see them and to allow them to be released. And, and in the bardo, without a body, they're just, you know, there. And there's, there's no, they're not workable anymore in that way. So, so this is, I think, why, and that made sense to me, um, and I don't really know, you know, I, I can't say I know anything beyond the end of the body's, you know, lifespan, and if there is a continuity or a continuing of something. Um, if there is, that makes sense to me, that, that you know, the sort of those, all of those winds uh, in, in, in this tradition of Buddhism, they call them the winds. Um, all of these winds, you know, kind of that drive us, you know, uh, will be very intense, you know. And so here, that's why, you know, in the uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they, they talk about this, this precious human birth, you know, we have this precious human birth to, to become uh, more free and to cultivate more um, kind, skillful, beneficial, uh, joyful ways of being. So, um, yeah, so that's, those are, you know, some some thoughts about dying. And I, I also think, you know, Joan Halifax um, is, has a wonderful book called Being with Dying. So uh, Joan Halifax wrote, she, uh, she's, um, she has a center in New Mexico called the Upaya Center. And, um, uh, and, you know, and she says, you know, we, we think as as Buddhists that, you know, we're doing all this practice and, you know, we want a good death. You know, we want to have aware and present and, you know, we want to, you know, we want to sit up like a Zen master and cross our legs and die. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she says, we don't, we don't have control over how we're going to die. We don't have control over that. You know, we could die in a car crash. You know, we could, we could die um, a stroke. Um, we don't have control over how we're going to die, and um, and so, and she said, and and some people who have been uh, really. 
profound, dedicated, deep practitioners in their lives, you know, just have so much pain, you know, as in, in, in stages of cancer or, or some, some illness that, that they're, they don't hold it together, you know, they don't hold it together. And, and she said, it's okay. It's okay, you know. It's it's just, it's. We don't. It, our death doesn't have to look, in a particular way. For it to be, uh, a good death. And that's true also for our loved ones. You know, we want, we want our parents or people that we care about, to go in a particular way. Yeah, I, d- I dedicated um, this this retreat to Michael Stone um, as we began, and um, you know, on his sudden death, and um, and during the retreat, um, a statement came out about his death, and um, and I really thought about it. Uh, to, uh, not everybody here you know, really knows or knew Michael Stone um, or even knows of him. Um, but uh, I, did, I thought about whether I, you know, it would be appropriate to read that and I decided I would. I would like to offer to you uh, to read it and um, <coughs> And, uh, and it gives us also a chance to reflect on it together. So, so thank you for bringing up that question because it, it, moves, it moves us into that realm. Um. Resuming windows. <laughs> Michael Stone. Yeah. So this is a statement that was posted on, on Facebook. Um, uh, I will. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So this is actually... Um, it's a link to Lion's Roar, uh, which is a magazine uh, that's been kind of uh, following this and, and uh, publishing the statements that have come out. So this is a, an official statement from Corinna Stone and Erin Robinson and Rose Riccio. Michael Stone passed suddenly from this world last weekend in Victoria, B.C. He was found on July 14th and remained on life support until July 16th. The story of what led to this moment is complex and heartbreaking. Michael was loved for his brilliant mind and generous heart. 
He was an eminent Buddhist and yoga teacher, author, uncommon activist, and human being. He had a gift for making really old practices fresh and relevant. He shone brightly. He was the bedrock of a community of yoga and meditation practitioners, first in Toronto and now an expanded international community. If you met or studied with Michael, you may remember him as wise, charismatic, and poetic. He seemed unshakable and capable of holding everyone's suffering, everyone else's suffering. And he did, but he struggled with his own. Michael lived with bipolar disorder his whole life. Bipolar disorder is characterized by a fluctuation between normalcy, mania, and depression. This manifested in visible and invisible ways. He was aroused by life. He sought experiences. As a young man, he drove race cars, followed the Grateful Dead, and experimented with psychedelics. He perceived the world with incredible sensitivity through music, art, and literature. Along with this lust for life was an impulsivity that he struggled to quell through yoga and Buddhist practice. His brain was rapid fire and wide open. It was part of his brilliance and his sensitive nature. Michael came to spiritual practice innately at a young age and then to formal study as a teenager. It was also a way to take care of his mental health. For a long time, he was well enough to resist the diagnosis and stay balanced naturally through practice and self-care. But as things got worse, he opened up more to family and friends and sought medical help. Taking care of his extreme mental states became a full-time job for him and his partner, Karina. They were a team. They were doing well. His international work was incredibly inspired and flourishing. They established self-care routines. He exercised. He went to bed early. He ate a special diet. They joked about fecal transplants. He saw naturopaths and herbalists and trainers and therapists. He continued his daily practice. As things worsened, he turned to psychiatry and medication as well. Balancing his meds was ever-changing and precarious. He struggled to be completely open with those around him about how much and how deeply he struggled. He tried. In 2015, Michael shared, You'd think that given all this inner work, an incredible network of support, strong friendships, a loving partner and kids, and lastly, a life dedicated to embodying the (coughs) Dharma, literally, every single day includes practice and study, that I'd be immune to extreme mental states. It can be hard to admit, even to ourselves, that there are times when the stability of awareness that we discover in meditation just isn't there. When this started happening, I'd say, my practice needs to get deeper. But the truth is, there was a chemical change in my brain. As versed as Michael was with the silence around mental health issues in our culture, he feared the stigma of his diagnosis. 
He was on the cusp of revealing publicly how shaped he was by bipolar disorder and how he was doing. In the silencing, he hid desires he had for relief. This spring, his mania began to cycle more rapidly. The psychiatrist had always said that the most dangerous part of bipolar disorder is the manic episode. It's the part they treat. In an effort to stabilize him, his medication dosage was increased. Now and then he he would mention a wish for a safe, non-addictive, prescribed natural form of opium. He discussed it with his psychiatrist and, and Karina. He thought it might calm his overactive mind. Unbeknownst to everybody, he was growing more desperate. On Thursday, January 13th, Michael left his Gulf Island home for a routine trip to Victoria. On the way into town, he called a substance abuse and addictions pharmacy, likely to ask for a safe, controlled drug to medicate, to self-medicate. He was not a candidate. He got a haircut, exercised, ran household errands, and finally acquired a street drug. Initial toxicology tests suggest inconclusively that he had opioids, including fentanyl, in his system. Because of the backup due to the fentanyl crisis, it will be five months before the conclusive toxicology test results are in. When he didn't come home, Karina initiated a missing persons search with the RCMP and he was found around midnight on Thursday. He was found unresponsive and found to have no brain function upon arrival at the hospital. He was declared brain dead on July 14th and kept on life support for the purpose of being an organ donor on Sunday, July 16th. Within hours of the operation, three people received new life through his organs his lungs and kidneys. His time in hospital was beautiful and peaceful, full of love and gratitude. Karina was by his side night and day until the last moment. He was surrounded by his family, his children, and dear friends. It may be hard to put one's mind into his, to imagine how he could take such a risk with a young family, a baby on the way, with such a full life and such fortune. It could be easy to shake one's head and think, what a shame. Culturally, we don't have enough language to talk about this. Rather than feel the shame and tragedy of it, can we find questions? What was he feeling? How was he coping? What am I uncomfortable hearing? What can we do for ourselves and others who have impulses or behaviors we cannot understand? Impulses that scare and silence us. How can we take care of each other? Michael did amazing work in the world and changed the lives of so many. He was a beautiful father and loving husband. He loved his life, his work, and his students deeply. He was loved immeasurably. He continues, 
We again wish to express our deep condolences to Michael's family, friends, and all who knew and were affected by him and his work. Those who would like to offer financial support to Michael Stone's family can do so via this on online fund. And there's a link at Lion's Roar. So I'd like to offer an opportunity for any of us who feels that you'd like to respond to this, um, what's coming up in you, uh, and you know, even if you didn't know Michael, um, it, we can be touched very deeply because so many people have mental illness in their families. to say a few words to guide us into that practice and then just to uh, <clears throat> practice in whatever way um, the Tonglen you know, practice uh, unfolds for you. So. And so we, we begin by just becoming present to our heart And, and feeling the pain that's there, uh, the pain of loss, the pain of perhaps um, grief, uh, perhaps even a sense of anger that, that he could not get the support he needed. whatever is coming up, just um, as we connect with the heart, breathing that in the heart, in, in, breathing that through the heart, breathing into the heart, and through into the vastness that surrounds us. The vastness of the heart of the Buddha, the vastness of openness, emptiness, the vastness of life, the vastness of that great web of being that Joanna Macy talked about in that guided meditation that we did earlier. From that great web, we cannot fall. Breathing into that and then breathing through. First of all, breathing through into our own being because perhaps fear is arising, perhaps uh, uncertainty is arising, doubt is arising, as well as grief. Whatever is arising within our own being, breathing that into the openness and spaciousness, and breathing from that vastness, light, clarity, connectedness, peace into our whole being 
and radiating outwards. Allowing our heart to feel whatever it feels, not needing to regulate our heart or say we shouldn't feel this, just opening to whatever the heart is feeling. It may be very painful, so important to be able to open to what is painful. When you feel ready, as long as you need to and want to offer this or take in through the Tonglen practice, what you need to, uh, as long as you need to want to take in your own pain and suffering, continue to do that. And, um, and breathing out into your own being. And as you feel you want to open to Karina and to her children and open to her grief, loss, perhaps fear, confusion, opening the heart to, to that and breathing that in with compassion for her. breathing it through into the heart of the Buddha, into the vastness, into the great web of life from which no one can fall. Breathing out and to her peace, kindness, light, clarity, support, love, Breathing in, breathing through, breathing out from the vastness.
In my in Karina's original posting on Facebook, she she included a quote from the Zen tradition and then also a version of the meta phrases and I'd like I'd like to read them to you. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted patterns. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.